Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace." What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. In Christ Jesus, our Lord. How does sanctification work? How do I gain victory over sin? How do I gain victory over the things I hate? As Paul referred to them, the things over which now I'm ashamed. Last time we talked about Paul's words in Romans 6.18, where he says, Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. Interesting terminology, very clear terminology. Freed from sin, that's what we titled the message. Freed from sin's prison. When you were an unbeliever, you were imprisoned to sin. If you are in Christ, he freed you. You didn't free you. You were imprisoned. You couldn't free you. You couldn't liberate yourself. Christ did the liberating. He freed you from the imprisonment 
into which you were born, into which you were captive your whole life until that moment that he freed you. Now you have a love for righteousness. In fact, Paul says you're imprisoned to righteousness. You love that which is good. But as I mentioned from Romans 7, verse 14, Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of flesh, sold into bondage to sin. You know the word picture, your hands are tied by sin? Which is it, Paul? Well, it certainly is true that in the past you were completely imprisoned to sin, and now you're partially imprisoned to sin. Why? Because you choose to be. You choose to go back. You subject yourself to those things of which you are now ashamed. Even though you're freed from them, you go back to them. Why? Because of this very important and difficult theological matter called the flesh. Now, let's be clear. You do not have two natures. You have one nature. It's impossible for you to have two natures. You say, but Jesus has two natures. Right, and that's a miracle. He has the nature of God. He has the nature of man. You have one nature. You had a nature. You have a different nature. Your old nature was displaced. 2 Corinthians 5.17 You are a new man. All things have become new. You say, I don't feel like a new man. Well, maybe you're not. You say, well, I'm pretty sure I am. Well, maybe you are. The point is, if you are in Christ, if you've been resurrected unto the new life, you have a new nature, and yet there is what we call the appendicitis, the spiritual appendicitis. Yours won't be removed till you go to heaven, I'm sorry. But it will be removed. You will not deal with the flesh anymore in heaven, but you will between now and then. It'll never stop. So when someone has influenced you to embrace Wesleyan theology uh, that gives the idea of perfectionism, that you somehow stop sinning in this lifetime, but you just make mistakes, reject it. Because Paul here is a 20-year veteran in Romans 7 says, I'm still dealing with this. Why do I do the things I don't want to do? Why do I not do the things I want to do? And as you know, we talked about it last time. He says, who will set me free from the body of this death? Well, thanks be to God for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and again, like we said, that's heaven. One day, your body will die. Your soul will live on. You'll no longer, because the body is separated from the soul, be influenced by the flesh, which is part of the condition of still having a body. And then you'll be given a new body. And you'll rejoice in that new body. And you'll never, ever, ever be affected by the flesh and all its problems. I always think of, when I think of this issue, I always think of my brother-in-law, Ryan. My brother-in-law, Ryan, and my sister-in-law, Brenda, have lost three babies. And their testimony is that they are thankful. Blessed be the Lord. For he gives and he takes away. And... What Ryan has shared numerous times is that their little ones will never experience what you and I are struggling with. They will never experience the stain of sin. It went directly to heaven. 
rejoicing in the Lord forever, never being affected by what you and I struggle with every day. And you and I can rejoice in that one day we will experience that. But for now, we have a responsibility. You want to be careful you don't get caught in either antinomianism or legalism. Antinomianism meaning I just reject the whole law. I'm under grace. I don't have to obey the law, which is a twisting of Paul's words. Legalism, the idea that you somehow earned or achieved or initiated your spiritual life and that you somehow maintain it. And when you do that, you become the person who is legalistically, hypocritically critical of others who don't love Jesus Christ and of others who do. Because you're committed, that person, the legalist, is committed to the idea that he has merit for his deeds. So he has no problem being unnecessarily critical of the unbeliever who, in fact, is dead. Just choose Jesus. That's what I did. Or the believer who's struggling in sin. The attitude you and I should have toward the believer who's struggling in sin and is overcome by it is expressed by Paul in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. We're to be gentle. Uh, we're to consider the fact that we ourselves are saved and sanctified by grace. It's not helpful to anybody to hit them over the head with a two-by-four to get them to change spiritually. But when a person is caught in sin, and the idea is not that he's been exposed. That's not what Paul's talking about. It's caught. It's like Proverbs 15, 22. He who is entangled in, his, in the cords of his sin. That's the idea. The person who's tangled, messed up, he's unable to free himself from the cords of sin. We're to have tenderness for that person. The legalist would have a two-by-four, a baseball bat for him. We're to come up underneath that person and bear his burdens. What burdens? Well, in the context of the passage, the burden of sin. Yeah, you are to bear the burden of sin with the believer, not walk away and roll your eyes in disgust. What do you do? What do you do for your spiritual growth? Paul says in Philippians 2, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, he's speaking to mature Christians, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Starts with a high view of God. You see why I'm so repeatedly committed to helping you understand God's sovereignty and salvation? If you don't have a high view of God, you won't fear him. If you embrace a man-centered theology, you will not fear God. You will only fear what other people think of you. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You know this in Isaiah 66. Who is the man to whom God looks? It's the humble man. And how is humility depicted in Isaiah 66? the one who trembles before the word of God. I am deeply concerned when a man stands in the pulpit and endeavors to be a comedian. And nothing wrong with occasional humor that just kind of slips out here and there. But when a man intentionally does things to promote flippant laughter, drawing attention to himself, I have a pretty difficult time believing that he trembles before the word of God that he's really concerned about getting it right. 
And we should never let the pendulum swing so far in the other direction that we say we don't care what people think. That, too, is a disinterest in what God thinks. We should fear God and be certain that we get the message right so that others would grow in their fear of God. You say, I thought we were called not to have a spirit of fear, but a spirit of love. That's a spirit of fear toward the world. Yes, you're called not to have a spirit of fear toward the things of the world, but you are to fear God. You know this. The scripture tells us a few times that that's the beginning of wisdom. So the person who walks in flippancy and ambiguous ethereal devotion to the Lord without any real commitment to the details of the scripture, he doesn't fear God. He doesn't think he has to. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And then this, <laughs> why, you might ask? Why? Well, verse 13, Philippians 2, for it is God. You get that? Fear and trembling of God. Why would we do it with fear and trembling? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work, right? Foreordained, but also to do the work for his good pleasure. He ordains it, he provides the means, he ordains the means. You say, well, then why do we do anything? Because Paul just said to. Plead with the Lord to give you a spirit of humility and see that although he has willed your salvation, uh, salvation and sanctification, although he has willed that, he has willed to work in you, but he has also commanded you to obey him. So we're going to look more at that toward the end of the message. On the same note, Hebrews 12, verse 14. Remember this from last time? So clear. Pursue peace with people you like. <laughs> Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. That's a call to kick the let go, let God idea to the moon. You get the point? The person who doesn't pursue his sanctification, let's look at it closely, let's be honest about this, let's be practical about it. The person who says, well, I asked Jesus into my heart when I was seven, and I know I'm not really, you know, faithful to the things of the Lord, but who cares because I'm a Christian and I'm going to heaven. Let's read it again. Hebrews 12, 14, pursue peace with all men. Not just those who agree with us theologically. Pursue peace with all men. And the sanctification, pursue the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. So the person who says, you know, I made a decision or whatever, but he's not pursuing his sanctification. He has no genuine interest in holiness. He will not see the Lord. And no matter how convinced he is he will, uh, that he will see the Lord, you know, that usually works. A person says, well, you know, I believe with all my heart and I've prayed about it that I am going to heaven. That's usually an indication that they've done little research on what it really means to go to heaven or whatever they're talking about. But the pastor who writes this book 
the book of Hebrews makes it clear. Those who go to be with the Lord are those who pursue their sanctification. Oh, and they also pursue peace with all men. Romans 8, 13, for if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. If you're living according to the flesh, you must die. The point is that you were never a Christian if you're living according to the flesh. But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. See that? God ordains your salvation. He ordains your sanctification. He ordains that he's going to work, and he commands you to work. He ordains that he would command that you work. He did command that you work. You must work. Unless I leave you at any point thinking that it is the result of your works that you were saved or the result of your works that you are sanctified, remember our study in 1 Peter, stand firm in the true grace of God. That should cause you to, to rest. Because your sanctification, now hear me when I say this, it's not dependent upon your work. Your sanctification is dependent upon God's grace. You say, well, I thought you said I have to work. You do. But why would you if it weren't for grace? You wouldn't. You wouldn't want to. So if you're working so as to maintain your salvation or even to produce your sanctification, you're not doing it by grace. Here's what this might look like in your own quiet time or in your own efforts to evangelize, or in your own efforts to sing here in the church, or serve, or whatever it may be, and uh, implementing your own spiritual gifts. You would never walk away from that saying, yeah, I'm doing pretty well. See that? That's not pursuing your sanctification by grace. That's pursuing it by works. So it really has everything to do with your attitude. That you're serving, saying, Lord, thank you for the privilege to serve. Thank you for the grace that you've poured into me. Not that I would establish a habit or a pattern uh, or a reputation for being faithful in the church by doing good works and other people would be manipulated into their own pattern of works. That is very common in a man-centered theology. It's extremely common. I would say it's, it's probably always the case those who are committed to a man-centered theology, committed to their own exaltation. And therefore, they can easily look at others and say, well, look at what I'm doing. Why aren't you doing this? What they ought to be saying is, praise God for the grace that he's given to me that I would have the privilege to serve you. And by the way, thank you for serving. Thank God for what he's doing through you, regardless of whether or not it fits the cookie-cutter mold that he has found himself in. See that? The person who thinks that everybody else ought to be serving exactly as he is. He's become a legalist. And he's committed to believing that everyone else simply needs to do exactly what he does. And oh, by the way, don't forget this part. Those who are doing more than he is, oh, they're fanatic. Right? The person who sees himself as the central standard, the reed or the, the canon by which everyone else ought to be measured. He's a legalist. He believes that he has established his position before the Lord. He might not say it that way, but he's operating that way. 
Therefore, everyone else is doing more than he is. Well, they're just a little overcommitted. And the ones who aren't doing as much as and maybe even exactly what he or she is doing, well, they're, I don't know what's wrong with them. I don't think they're Christians. The call for you and me is to walk by the Spirit. Do what we do by the Spirit. Thanking the Lord, he's given us the privilege to be involved in this. Trusting that he, having established a diversity of giftedness, having established substantial differences, not just in personalities, that's not the issue, but in giftedness, that we collectively would serve unto the fullness of the expression of the person of Christ, and he, he then receives the glory. You know, and we're not going to browbeat anyone then. We wouldn't be compelled to, because we would just say, Lord, thank you that you're using me and my, you know, my own awareness of my inadequacy to just be faithful. And did you know, you know this, right? No one can outdo your faithfulness as long as you're being faithful. As long as you're being faithful. No one can outdo that. No one. Not Paul. No one. Be faithful. And rest in the grace that God has given to you and to others whom he has saved all for his glory. Well, in verse 20, Chapter 5, verse 20. This is kind of what it comes down to for Paul in, in chapter 5. You sinned in Adam. We're all culpable. When Adam sinned, we sinned in Adam. The idea is that we would have done what he did. And so, for Paul explains that sin is not imputed. Uh, you need to understand that word. Imputed has to do with a declaration. It really is a legal term. Where sin is not imputed, the idea is that sinners from the time of Adam unto Moses were not declared so clearly to bear their responsibilities as sinners under the penalty of death as they are from the time of Moses forward, where the law makes it really, really clear. That's what the writing of the law did. It clarified all that. So we're all up to that point and even to this day, under the penalty of sin and culpable for that. And so the, the point of that is, if you've looked at your study guide for this week, you, the point of that is that death reigns. Death reigns for all of those who are without Christ. Death reigns. You don't reign. There's not a chink in death's armor that you can kind of slip your way in. You know, I'm going to choose Christ to get out of this imprisonment to death. You can't. You couldn't. You're dead. So, because death reigns for those who are without Christ, but in the opposing reality for the believer, now grace reigns. Now hear me. For the person who thinks that death didn't reign and he penetrated death's armor, grace doesn't reign. He doesn't need for it to reign. He never needed grace. He penetrated death's armor all on his own with a little assistance from Christ's death on the cross. But for the one who rests completely in what Christ accomplished, he knows it's all of grace. It's only grace. We talked about John Bunyan and his awareness of the fact that it's not grace. It's grace alone. And this launched John Bunyan 
into not only a greater fullness of understanding of what Christ had accomplished, but a faithful life, whereas prior to that he was only frustrated. For the person who is saved by grace, grace reigns in his life. And when he leans on that, he rests in that. He would never ask the question, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Now, why does Paul set this question up? Let's go back to verse 20, 520. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. Really what Paul is saying here is a couple things. When the law was laid out, now there will be those who will say, well, I don't want to obey this. This is too much. So sin will increase for those who reject the law. But also, the reality that the law says what it says makes it that much clearer that sin is as prevalent as it is. So when the law was expressed, now we can't help but realize the greatness of sin. The law made it clear. But where sin increased with the law, right? The law exposed sin all the more. And where sin increased, what else increased? What abounded all the more? Grace, because it needed to. There needed to be that much more grace to cover all the sin that increased. So that as sin reigned in death, talked about this a moment ago, as sin uh, reigned in death, sin reigns, death reigns, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you love that? I'm going to heaven. I remember a buddy of mine in seminary had gone through a very difficult experience, and he had gone to a friend of ours and was seeking some consolation, some encouragement. He came to my office, and he said, you know what Lance said to me? And, and my friend's name is Todd also. Just so you know, and I'm not talking about a friend, but it really is a friend. His, <laughs> his name is also Todd. He, he, he said, you know what Lance said to me? He said, Todd, you're saved. You're going to heaven. Be happy. He didn't like hearing that. But he eventually grew to like hearing that. Isn't it interesting how we become so desensitized to the significance? God has granted us eternal life where we will enjoy him in perfection forever. We'll never have any disagreements. And I'm not just talking about the, you know, the worldly related issues, but even the theological issues, we will all agree. And the primary, singular, most important issue will be, is, will be the glory of God. We'll rest in his presence. What do we do between now and then? We've got to come to the place where we would fear him, we would honor him, we would be willing to acknowledge who he is and what he's called us to do so that we would be effective. The Holy Spirit would use us to draw his lost sheep unto him. The fact that many were made righteous and not simply given an opportunity for righteousness is an expression of God's sovereign, irresistible grace. How can we not worship him in light of that? How can we not just give exclusive worship to him in light of that? If we believe anything else, we would only give him partial worship. And we ourselves would take credit, which deglorifies him. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness. This is, a, this is what we call practical theology. 
a commitment to personal righteousness. Not self-righteousness that you've achieved, but the working out of your salvation, putting off that which is sinful, putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you know. That's what it looks like. Grace reigns through righteousness. You are becoming increasingly sensitive to your lack of integrity, your dishonesty, your defensiveness, your gossip. Grace reigns through righteousness, and that righteousness ultimately is, ex is an expression of Christ's righteousness, and it ultimately leads to eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. That's how you know you have eternal life. You're genuinely committed to the things that God is committed to. Now, verse 1, chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? And this is not water baptism. This is a term that simply means identification. You've been identified into Christ. If you're truly identified in Christ, if you're in Christ, you're in his death. You're buried with him. You're no longer yours. 1 Corinthians 6. You've been bought with a price. You didn't add 50 cents to that purchase. You were bought. You didn't have spiritual money to offer. You were purchased. And in that purchase, you now belong to him. You are a slave to him. You are a slave to righteousness. You're a slave to those things that he loves, meaning you love those things. You're imprisoned with a passion for good. We took you through 1 John, where John explains that person who is a liar is not born of God, and yet the person who declares he has no sin is also not born of God. So again, we're not talking about Wesleyan perfectionism, but we are talking about commitment to righteousness in the depths of the soul, not just conduct. Well, verse 4 Therefore, we've been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. There's a fresh devotion to that which is pure. And the person who is bored with this is clearly not imprisoned by it. The person who says, all this religious stuff, well, he has no interest in newness of life. And so that decision that he made clearly was not efficacious. It really didn't result in this imprisonment. He's still imprisoned, although he made a decision. He made a decision in the flesh. He's therefore still in the flesh. Get that? As a result, he walks in the flesh, and he has no interest in the newness of life about Paul about which Paul is speaking, and the newness of life that is granted to the person who is now purchased and enslaved to the person of Christ and his righteousness. But see, this is the victorious, grace-redeemed life that stands firm in that grace. It is not a dismissive view of one's sin that says... I know I'm about to sin, but Christ died for my sins, past, present, and future. Therefore, it's okay. That kind of presumption, Paul clearly explains to mean that that person is not a Christian. Why? He says they're still condemned in Romans 3. The guy who lives that way does not walk in newness of life. He 
probably walks based on a decision he made in the flesh, and therefore he walks in the flesh. Verse 5, for if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, right, you're dead to yourself, alive to him, if we have become united with him in that likeness, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection. What, what's this? The likeness of his resurrection? He, in his resurrection, is no longer, Jesus, is no longer affected by and limited by the incarnation. We, too, walk in, a, in an appearance of that resurrection as he was transfigured unto glory. Ultimately, we will be transfigured unto glory. One day, completely unaffected, uninfluenced by sin, uh, the depraved condition, the earthly limited condition in which we live. But between now and then, we reflect that. We bring heaven down in a sense. We reflect the perfections of heaven, not because we have achieved it, but as Paul indicates in Philippians 3, we hang on for it. Not, not that I've achieved it in this lifetime, but I pursue it, forgetting all that is in the past, pursuing the prize, the brass ring, if you will, of the resurrection. I look forward to that, and therefore my life is somewhat of a shadow of that. That's the idea. It's a pervasive interest in the resurrected, the resurrected life that we one day will enjoy in fullness, but experience to some degree even now. Why? In order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. You are freed from sin's prison. You can walk in newness of life. In fact, Paul says you do. You do walk in newness of life. Verse 8. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. And you know this from Roman Catholic theology. Uh, they teach that when you go into the confessional booth to receive forgiveness of sins, Christ somehow re-dies. It's very mystical and very illogical and completely unrealistic. Christ died once. He will not die again. And for those for whom he died, they too die in Christ. And therefore, just as sin no longer has any mastery, any influence over him, they too are no longer under the mastery or the influence of sin. He accomplished it. You and I enjoy it. You say, I'm not enjoying that. One of two things is wrong. You're not redeemed or you've returned to the bondage of sin. Either way, if you're in Christ, you are in his death, you are in his resurrection, and neither sin nor death has mastery over you. And I'm not telling you just kind of believe it and it will be. I'm telling you, think about the theology of it. Think about the theology of it in the scripture. Verse 10, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. That really could be the title of the message. That really could be the title of your life. I live to God. For the Christian, that's what he does. I live to God. 
For the infant Christian, he does it in a wobbly sense. He barely can walk. Maybe he can't walk yet. He needs nurture. He needs care. He needs someone to gently come along and help him understand how sanctification works. But eventually, he gets to the place that he manages this, not by himself, but with the body. But he's integrally involved. The body depends on him. He needs the body. The body needs him or her. He lives to God. He died to sin. Christ died to sin once for all, meaning one time. The person who is in Christ has died to that sin as well. He no longer lives imprisoned to sin. He no longer lives influenced by sin. He lives to God. It's the desire of his life godly person. He thinks about God. He prays to God. He tells people about God. Influenced by God. Paul speaks here of the person who has died with Christ. When he died with Christ, he died to sin. So he is alive to God and he lives to God. Verse 11. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Consider yourselves to be dead to to sin. Set your mind on things above, not on the things that are on earth, Paul says in Colossians 3, verse 2. Set your mind on him. Set your mind on the things of heaven. And execute, put to death the things of this earth. Meaning the worldly things. Meaning the things that are not pleasing to him. Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it's because of these things that the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside. He gives a list of them. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices and have put on the new self, who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. Being renewed to that image involves your work. God ordained that it would happen, and he actually causes it in you. He's conforming you to his image, and he uses your obedience to make that happen. You're putting to death the former sins to which you were committed. In fact, Paul says here in Colossians 3, you not only walked in them, you lived in them. They not only were what you did, they were who you were. They were the essence of your character. God changed that, and now he's given you not only the declaration that he and he alone can receive the glory for it, he's given you the imperatives or the commands to follow it through. Do not lie to one another. Avoid passion, malice, wrath, slander, all these things. It's who you were. Reject them now. Put them to death. Verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. See that? It, it can still reign. It can still reign. And again, you've got two questions. Am I in Christ, in his death, in his resurrection, if sin is reigning in my life? Or have I simply returned for a time? Which is it? If it's a, a long-term pattern, you're not in Christ. 
But if you're convicted, you must obey the scripture. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. Abandon the situation that's leading you to sin. Otherwise, you prove yourself to be an unbeliever. There's no other way to interpret your life. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. I can't really add much to that. It's really clear. The person who is in Christ is commanded, and you know this from 1 John 2, we know that we've come to know him because we give some consideration of his commands. No, because we obey his commands. That's how you know if you, if you know him. So will you, if you are experiencing the dominion of sin, you're saying, Todd, I want to I come out from underneath the imprisonment of sin. I want to be freed from sin's prison. Then will you do this? Will you do this? Will you have right theology about what God has accomplished? And will you then therefore, verse 12, not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts? For some people, this is sexual immorality. For some people, it's gossip. It might be anger. It might be slander. It might be bitterness. But do not, here's the command, do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. But present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. This is practical theology. Theology is practical, but this, this doesn't require a lot of explanation. 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. You see how this works? So you're resting in the grace of what Christ accomplished. Peter goes on, verse 14, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. It's talking about conduct, the practices of your life. Why? Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That's why. Resting in the grace of what Christ accomplished, and as a result of the grace that he has granted you, bringing you eternal life, bringing you the process of sanctification, that you would be humbled and thankful for that and therefore obey him. You will want to obey him if you recognize that it's by grace. You'll want to run from those who influence you to continue to subject the members of your life, your body, to unrighteousness. And you probably, if you're influenced by someone to do that, you're probably scared of that person. You probably fear that person. You probably worship that person. You probably are manipulated and intimidated by that person. And you need the body of Christ to help you separate yourself from that person. But how is this possible? How is this possible that, that we would be willing to do this? Here's why. Verse 14. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Sin is not master over you if you're in Christ. It's not ultimately your master. God is. You're not under law, meaning you're not condemned by the declarations of the law that apply to the person who walks in sin. You're not under 
the law, you're under grace. God has granted you grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? Shall we seek forgiveness later instead of permission now? Presumption. May it never be. A Christian wouldn't do that. Do you not know that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness? Say, so, yeah, doesn't he say that you know, that we presented ourselves as slaves? Absolutely. Absolutely. The moment he purchased you, you presented yourself. I'm yours. I'm going to honor you. I'm going to be obedient to you. I want to love you and be faithful to you. You need sound teaching. You need to be subject to the truth regarding these things. Paul goes on in verse 17, but thanks be to God. This is a struggle. Paul's not implying here that this is a piece of cake. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. This is where this takes place fundamentally. It's fundamentally internal. It's also external, but it's fundamentally internal. So as you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. You see how that works? By and large, people are saved through the teaching of God's word. You see that in Romans 10, right? How will they be saved without a preacher? And I believe in the context of that passage, every Christian should be considered, considering himself a preacher, a proclaimer, one who declares the word of God as an evangelist. Verse 18 again, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. That's how it happens. We already talked about how it works. This is how it happens. As you present yourself as slaves to righteousness, you will be sanctified. You want to be sanctified. You want to overcome sin. Present yourself as slaves to righteousness. Don't downplay your sin. Don't downplay your small smatterings of gossip. Don't downplay the bitterness of your heart. Don't downplay the influence that some have had on your attitude toward Christians. Don't downplay those seemingly small things. Do not present your members to unrighteousness. Why? What will that result in? Lawlessness. Antinomianism. Arminianism. Man-centered theology. Do not downplay the significance of your sin and the death in which you resided prior to your salvation. Downplay that you will prevent your sanctification and you will usher yourself further into lawlessness. On the other hand, 
Present yourselves to righteousness. Present your members to righteousness. And what will be the result? Sanctification. Victory over sin. Verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were freed in regard to righteousness. See that? You weren't enslaved to righteousness when you were slaves to sin. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. You see, for the person who thinks he initiated his salvation and he so easily goes back into these things with, with no apparent conviction at all of his gossip or his bitterness, his dishonesty, his deception, his presumptuous into going headlong into sin. For the, the person who is not ashamed, he can't look back on them and say that these are things of which I was ashamed because he's not ashamed of them. He thinks it's okay. He just thinks it's a little slip here and there. He's not concerned about it. What's the outcome of those things? Death. It's death. Verse 22. They now, having been freed from sin. You see the beauty of that? When God has accomplished freedom from sin, God then gets the glory, and we can say, I want to work out my salvation. I want to be less like self. I want to decrease. I no longer want to exalt myself and defame others. I want God to receive glory. I want to be an encourager. I want to be a person who provides strength and service and help to the body. Not for my own exaltation. Now having been freed from sin and enslaved to God. You derive your benefit. From that benefit, what do you get? Sanctification. So you think rightly about these things, you'll want to do rightly about them, and the result will be that you will be changed. It's the beauty of the theology of sanctification. You realize that God has freed you from sin. He's enslaved you to himself. You derive the benefit, and the benefit results in sanctification. And the outcome, not death. Not death. Eternal life. The outcome is eternal life. How do you know you're saved? Because you're committed to your sanctification. You're presenting yourself, your members, to righteousness. You're no longer presenting yourself to unrighteousness. And then verse 23. <laughs> Large percentage of you have this passage memorized. The wages of sin is death. Strike a much louder ring now that we've looked at the reality of how sanctification works and how it happens. The wages of sin is death. The person who believes, truly believes that the wages of sin is death can't possibly believe that he brought himself to Christ because he's aware of the greatness of his sin and the greatness of the death in which he resided because of that sin. Only God could save me from that sinful condition. Only God could raise me from the dead. I couldn't have raised myself from the dead. I was dead. And so what does he do? He looks back on the fact that the wages of his sin was his death, but he rests in the reality that the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he sets his heart on Jesus Christ. He loves Jesus Christ. He meditates on Christ. 
Well, a few things then on what to do. What do you do with this? How do you work out your salvation? I've got a long list. I'm going to condense it so we can get through it, and it will be helpful to you, I hope. What is your part? Number one, number one, treasure Jesus Christ. Treasure him. Hold him near and dear to your heart. This is how you can know that you know Jesus Christ, because you're committed to his word, not some emotional feeling that you have when you hear certain music. You believe what he has said. You believe what his father has said. Psalm 119, verse 11 says, Your word I have treasured in my heart that I might not sin against you. See that? You treasure the word of God in your heart, and the result is you build up an insulation against sin's temptation. You're building a fortress in your own life and heart against that which displeases the Lord and leads him to condemn sinners to an eternity of torment. Romans 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with the flesh, the law of sin. Jesus said, sanctify them with truth, Father. Your word is truth. Treasure Jesus Christ by receiving his word. And so I've got a few letters here. This is number one. Number one, treasure Jesus Christ. Letter A, receive the word of God. Receive the word of God. Paul says in Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we proclaim him admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. The, the sanctification process has proven effective because of the faithful proclamation of the person of Jesus Christ. And Paul then goes on in verse 29 to explain the preparation for that type of teaching. Listen to this, verse 29, for this purpose also I labor striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. The person who provides this kind of spiritual food works hard under the dominion of the Holy Spirit to get the message right so that he would have the privilege to present men and women complete in Christ. Treasure Jesus Christ by receiving his Word. Paul speaks of the Thessalonians as those who receive the word of God, not as the word of men, but as the word of God and in affliction to boot. Letter B, sing the word of God. You'll have an opportunity to do that here in a bit. Sing the word of God. Psalm 119, 172 says, Let my tongue sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteousness. Let my tongue sing of your word. Singing the word of God. This is why we put so much effort into ensuring that the lyrics that we present before you are theologically productive in your heart towards sanctification and a love for Jesus Christ. You should take advantage of our weekly devotional guide on our website. And now, just as of this morning, we no longer have are putting on the, the YouTube videos, but our actual music. The music that we sing here together on Sunday mornings has been recorded, put on the website. You can treasure Jesus Christ with the music that you enjoy on a weekly basis. James 5.13 says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Sing to the Lord. Treasure Jesus Christ in the midst of whatever difficulties you're experiencing. Letter C, 
Read the word of God, of course. Read it. You see in Joshua 8, Nehemiah 8, these expressions of the public reading of God's word. They didn't all have personal Bibles, much less iPhones back then. So someone was reading the scripture, and the call to your life and to my life is to be a reader of God's word. Be a person who reads God's word daily. Letter D, meditate on the word of God. You want to be sanctified? Meditate on the word of God. You find yourself recognizing your lack of sanctification in certain areas. And you can easily say, okay, these sinful thoughts that are resulting in sinful actions, these are not approved by God. And you know that because you don't find them promoted or prescribed in the word of God. So what's happening is you're not meditating on the word of God. You're meditating on the fleshly sinful tendencies of the human heart. Meditate on the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Meditate on the word of God. E, memorize the word of God. Again, your word I've hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. As a person who has the privilege to have influence on a number of people's lives in the church, I put a great deal of stock in 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. It's important for me to have the word of God hidden in my heart so that as I share it with you, I'm, I'm telling you what he has said, not my opinions. Memorize the word of God. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Not if you don't have it with you in the darkness. You imagine? You're walking down a dark path. You don't know what to do. You can't find your way. You're concerned about what enemy might be out there. Oh, wait a minute. I got a flashlight. You pull it out and your path is lighted. That would be true if you said, oh, wait a minute, I got the word of God in my heart. Begin to recite the word of God. Begin to meditate on the word of God that's stored up in your heart. F, pray the word of God. Pray the word of God. Paul says, without ceasing, we are to pray. 1 Thessalonians 5, right? Ephesians 5, 20, always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. Pray with supplication and thanksgiving. Paul says in Philippians 4, 4, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication. Present your requests to God. As you present your requests to God, what happens? The peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Be a person of prayer. I mean, are you? You say, yeah, I pray, you know, before we eat, and you know, something difficult happens. You have a time where you pray. You read the word. You sing the word. You memorize the word. You meditate on the word. You pray the word. This is how sanctification happens. So point number one, treasure Jesus Christ. Number two, Terminate the things he hates. Terminate them. Do business. Go after the sinful condition with a vengeance, with a holy hatred. 
John Owen said, do you mortify? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it whilst you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Romans 12, 9, Paul defines love. He says, let love be without hypocrisy. He says, cling to what is good and abhor what is evil. Have a holy, righteous hatred for that which God hates. As long as you continue in what God hates, you will not experience sanctification. You can be certain of it. Romans 13, 14, one of our favorite passages around here. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh with regard to its lusts. See, that's kind of the other side of the coin. Refusing, because of your willingness to kill sin, refusing to add a provision. Cut it off. Be serious about it. Terminate what he hates. Psalm 97.10 says, Hate evil, you who love the Lord, who preserves the souls of his godly ones. He delivers them from the hand of the wicked. Hate evil. Prove your hatred of evil by separating yourself from it. James 4. 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And you engage in worldly things, worldly lusts, worldly passions, worldly sin. You prove yourself to be an enemy of God. John Owen says, Let no man think to kill sin with few, easy, or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent... If he follow not on his blow until he be slain, may repent that ever he began the quarrel. Anybody ever kill a snake? And you look at it and you go, that thing's not dead. I grew up where snake killing was a weekly adventure. We knew that to end the battle was to remove the head. And even then, you had to wonder. The residual effects of the venom of a snake could kill a person. Owen goes on, the vigor and power and comfort of our spiritual life depends on our mortification of the deeds of the flesh. There must be a passion for killing sin. Number three, treasure Believers. Treasure believers. Do a study in the one another's. Be willing to confess your sins one to another. Pray for each other. Pray for each other's overcoming of sin. Don't be the prideful person who assumes that nobody wonders whether or not you have sin. They know you do, and they still love you. And they probably, if they're close to you at all, have a pretty good idea of what those actual sins are. Why not? acknowledge what they probably already know and plead with them to pray for you in those areas. I got a wonderful email from someone in our church this is last week. He said, I'm praying for you in this area. And, and, and how else can I pray for you? And I said, pray in that area because you nailed it. Philippians 2, 3, do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Be willing 
to be available and involved in each other's lives. Treasure believers. Treasure them. Now, brethren, 2 Corinthians 8.1, Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God, which has been given in the churches of Macedonia, that in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. See what's happening here? Believers giving to believers who had great need. Most of you, maybe all of you, at one time were taught to tithe. That is legalism, and it is not a command for the New Testament Christian. In fact, the command that was given to Old Testament Israel was not a 10% tithe. It was more like 23 and a third percent. So if you want to tithe, give 23 and a third percent. But if you want to give faithfully, give based on the needs. Give sacrificially. Give joyously. Now, I have to stop here and say, you do. You as a local church give as according to the New Testament attitude and command. 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6, give as you have determined. And of course, that involves a joyous, hilarious spirit. It involves a sacrifice. It involves a willingness to acknowledge that the Lord will remunerate you as you have need. Give based on the needs that you know the church has. Doing what you do in a commitment to treasure others. For sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Do these three things. Treasure Christ. Terminate what he hates and treasure believers. There's so much more we could say on this. Remember two weeks ago I shared with you a story about a guy named Roy Murphy, a 43-year-old career criminal who stood before a judge and indicated that he had attempted to rob a convenience store so that he'd go back to prison. He was so ridiculously polite to the clerk that he asked, could you please hand over the money? No, you're not very threatening. Well, would it be better if I put on my ski mask? Because I have one. I'll put it on if that would help. The guy left in frustration and asked the clerk to call the police. The clerk did. He ends up doing a little bit of time. As the judge and attorneys discussed whether Roy Murphy should receive the maximum or a lesser sentence, he spoke up and said, I intended to go to prison. I've been out for a year. I've got nothing, and I don't know how to make it on the outside. Is that you? You don't know how to make it on the outside of the depravity and the sin to which you were born that led to death. Is that you, or do you know someone like that? Because, you know, I initiated this Christian thing, but I'm not experiencing traction. You know, there were some things about sin I liked. I'm going to go back to that. And so you experience the imprisonment sin and it has its temporary joys feels good feels right and yet you know you're imprisoned this is not ultimately or lengthily true for the Christian who has been freed from the prison of sin he's no longer held captive to its penalty nor its power for the false convert who feigns godliness but wants nothing to do with it he doesn't simply return to sin's prison he never leaves it 
He never left the prison. He only pretends to have been freed so that he can continue in it while surrounded by those who have been freed. He wants all he can get from them by deception and dishonor. In addition, he demands to be honored and refuses to be confronted, showing no interest in sanctification. See, he who hates correction is a fool. He hates correction, he hates discipline, he hates rebuke, he hates reproof. No correction could ever help him because his greatest desire is to maintain the facade of holiness with no real interest in experiencing it. He's so poisonous, the scripture requires that those who are wise refrain from correcting him. Do not correct a scoffer, lest you be subject to anger and dishonor yourself. Although you cannot become a spiritual giant overnight, you can humble yourself and you can be faithful. Do that and God will mature you. Rest in the grace of God who saves lost sinners. Rest in what he accomplished. Obey him and he will mature you. If you tend to think highly of yourself, stop resisting correction and go looking for it. God will make you wise. As long as you believe you are never wrong, and above correction, you will never be of any real spiritual use to anyone. In fact, you will be most harmful reproducing your defensive, prideful disposition in those you influence. But if you rest in the grace of Jesus Christ and you obey him, he will sanctify you. Treasure Jesus Christ. Terminate what he hates. Be done with it. And treasure those whom he has saved. Father, I thank you for a faithful church faithful people who listen lengthily to your word rest in the glory and the grace of Jesus Christ but Lord we ask not that you would simply do a work in our midst but that you in doing that work would equip us for faithful and effective evangelism each of us knows many many people who are without Christ Father we certainly know people and we ourselves have been those who are under the impression that we are in Christ, and yet we're not in his death. We were not in his resurrection. We did not walk in newness of life. So God, give us compassion on those who are in that condition, under the impression that they're in Christ, but no interest in sanctification. Lord, may we do away with self-righteousness, legalism, and may we do away with antinomianism and help us to rest, not in the middle, but on the high ground of the grace of God, because we are under grace and no longer under law, no longer imprisoned to sin, but freed from it, we ask this for your glory. Amen.